Welcome to the Sale Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And for more information about our church, visit salestreet.org. Father, as we go into this new year, I'm sure that there are a lot of emotions that we have. Some are maybe excited, some are nervous, some maybe just want to leave the previous year behind. And so as we go into this year, we just want to say that this is in every way your year. We know that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose, and that's us. We love you. We're called according to your purpose. We want to know you, and we want to make you known, and so we pray that you would empower us more and more this year to do that. We thank you for the work that you've done in us, and we look forward to the work that you're going to do. God, we know that we are on a trajectory to becoming a more biblical church. You've made the promise that you are shaping us and molding us and maturing us into the fullness of Christ. And we look forward to what you have for us. God, we ask now that as we open your word that you would speak to us, that our hearts would be open and pure and just good soil for you to, for you to plant your word into and that it, would, that it would grow a harvest in our lives. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, happy new year. It is, uh, it's kind of hard to believe it's 2023 already, but uh, I'm excited about it. I can't wait to see what God is going to do in us this year. Um, I, hopefully in, in my life, uh, just later this afternoon, hopefully he's got in store for me some black eyed peas and cabbage and cornbread. Love me some New Year's food. And, uh, and as far as for us as a church, at least one thing he's got in store for us is a new sermon series, and so as you could maybe tell from the video, we're going to be starting the Gospel of Mark today. And so if you would, grab a Bible, turn with me there, the Gospel of Mark, and obviously we'll be in chapter 1. Uh, if you're new to church, when I mention the Gospels, I'm talking about the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these books of the Bible are focused on directly describing the actions and teachings of Jesus, and Mark is one of them. And even though this is the shortest of the Gospels, we're going to be in this book for probably quite a while this year, uh, maybe for the whole year. And so if you're wondering today, like, well, why Mark specifically? Well, as we were walking through the book of Ephesians, and as we saw how just exalting of Jesus it was, and as we talked more and more about how we want Jesus to be the head of the church in every way, I began to feel led to follow up Ephesians with as much of a focus on Jesus as we could. And so that's going to be in one of the Gospels. And, and so since the, the church has kind of become more committed to preaching through books of the Bible, we hadn't gone through a Gospel yet. And so that was the direction that I felt like we needed to head. And then as I continued to pray for more direction, um, honestly, I was, I was a little surprised to feel led toward Mark um, as I was just kind of praying through, uh, man, just verses and references to Mark just kept showing up all over the place and stuff that I was reading and stuff that I was listening to and conversations that I had. And so it was happening so much that I just had to take some notice. And so I read through it and I continued to pray and I just felt more and more confident that this really is where God wants us this year. And that's primarily because of, of two things that's going on in the book of Mark. 
One is the questions that it answers, and secondly, its emphasis on true discipleship. And so listen, in our culture today, we are constantly feeling this kind of pull and this draw toward a more comfortable and complacent and consumeristic version of Christianity, aren't we? And so the gospel of Mark, it can help us. It can kind of pull us back and draw us back to Jesus and help us to to answer some questions that we might have. Questions like, well, who is Jesus really? Because he wasn't who most people expected. And how did he usher in the kingdom of God? Because he didn't do it in a way that most people expected. And then most importantly for us, then what does that mean? What does it really mean for us to follow Jesus today? And so as we go throughout the book of Mark, we're going to see that the same invitation to his first disciples is the same invitation for us when he says in Mark 1.15, he says, the kingdom of God is here. Repent of sin, believe the gospel, and follow me. And whether we've been a Christian for a few days or a few, for a few decades, this call to true discipleship never ceases to be the call in our lives. He invites us today, and he's going to invite us every day to that same call. He says, the kingdom of God is here. Repent of sin, believe the gospel, and follow me. Accepting this invitation in our lives personally, that's the greatest thing we can do. And it's also the greatest thing that we can do collectively as a church. And so don't you want to experience that in your life? Like, don't you want to be a part of a group of people that's all in on this? Isn't that the, the desire of your heart? I know for me, even though, man, I should be farther along in the faith. I've got a lot of room to grow. But for whatever reason, God has put in my heart that desire. And I can't shake it. I just want to be a part of this group of people who is, who's all in and who loves Jesus enough to just push aside all the secondary things in life. Things that distract us from just going after his presence and going after his mission. I've just got that desire in my heart. And I believe that there's a lot of us here this morning who has that same desire. We just want to go after his presence and we want to go after his mission. And so that's my prayer for us as we walk through the gospel of Mark. An increased focus on the presence of Jesus, an increased commitment to the mission of Jesus. And so with that being our prayer, let's, let's get into it. And so now if you'll notice at the beginning, there's really no introduction. There's no mention of the author. And so let me just say a few quick words about the author here. The author is a guy named John Mark. Uh, he wasn't one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, so that means he wasn't an apostle, and so that might cause us to question the validity of his account, but the early church did affirm that John Mark was actually the interpreter for Peter. And so Peter, this really, if we look at this, this is really Peter's account as recorded through John Mark. And, and this is just kind of speculation, but one thing that I like to consider is that maybe Peter and John Mark had, had some connection because they both knew what it was like to, have a, to kind of walk through a ministry failure. Um, we probably know of Peter. You know, he, he denied Jesus three times. Jesus going to the cross, and so he denies knowing him right before he's, he's commissioned to then be the, this leader of the early church movement. We know about that. We're probably less familiar with John Marks. And so John Mark, this was a guy who was actually a ministry companion of the Apostle Paul. He goes on with in his first ministry, uh, first missionary journey in Acts chapter 12. But then for whatever reason in Acts 13, he decides to leave Paul. We don't really know why, but he decides to leave Paul. 
And we might not think much of it, but it seemed to be an issue because then in Acts 15, whenever Barnabas suggests that John Mark join them again on a missionary journey, Paul's like, you know what? No. He kind of punked out the first time, and so he's not going to go with us again. But the good news is here that apparently at some point they reconciled because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul asks for John Mark's help, and he mentions how helpful he is to him in ministry. And I kind of love these moments in the Bible where it's like that. There's kind of that real, raw, kind of reminds us that, hey, these were real people. They were really just trying to follow Jesus and to serve Jesus. And there are going to be these moments of realness and rawness in their lives. And so, um, so I just love seeing moments like that. And, and then one more thing about John Mark. Uh, it is likely that he is writing to encourage Christians in Rome who are experiencing levels of persecution because of their faith. And so that's why if you read through Mark, there's such a strong theme about the powerful son of God also being the suffering servant. And so I think it would probably have been comforting for them to hear about how, how Jesus can identify with them in their difficulty. But it would also be encouraging for them to know that his suffering accomplished the greatest outcome. And this can be encouraging to us today. I mean, we're nowhere where the early church was. We're not experiencing that, but it seems like we are going to experience more and more resistance. And so if we do and as we do, this can be a great reminder for us to just have our eyes fixed on Jesus. And if we experience any level of resistance, we can remember that it's guaranteed that any kind of resistance, any kind of opposition is going to be temporary and it's going to be ultimately worth it. And so there's a little bit about John Mark. And so now let's really jump in in verses 1 through 8 today. Let's start by reading on through it, and then we'll walk back through and talk through it a little bit. Mark 1, 1 through 8. Here's how it begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so in this passage is the first half of Mark's introduction, and in it we're going to focus on two aspects. Number one, the purpose of Mark in verse 1. And then secondly, what I call the prophetic preparation in verses 2 through 8. And so let's start with the purpose of Mark in verse 1. So like I mentioned, and as you can see, he just kind of, he jumps right in. He doesn't waste any time getting straight to the point of his gospel. We don't see any gene genealogy like in Matthew. There's no birth narrative like we saw last week in the gospel of Luke. There's no mention of his pre-existent nature in John, and he just kind of jumps right in, and that's how the entire book of Mark reads. It reads quickly, it's fast-paced, it's action-packed, it's, it's really direct. He just kind of goes from one event to the next, and, and there's a transition word of the word immediately. It's mentioned 41 times. It's just one event of Jesus to the next. He jumps in. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
He says, what I'm writing here, it isn't primarily informational, and it's not even primarily biographical. He's saying, I'm doing more here than just telling you a story about a man's life. I am proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in every passage in Mark. And as a book, as a whole, it's the whole thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A lot of us know that gospel means good news, and for the Jews, they would have thought of it as a term of victory. And so if they would go fight a battle, they might send an evangelist back to town to proclaim, hey, we've won the battle, the victory has been won. And so they would go back to, to proclaim that victory. But also for the Romans, they had a, a meaning for the word gospel too. Whenever they would want to announce that there was a new Caesar that had been born, they would use that word gospel to announce that, hey, there was a new Caesar coming in to power. Well, for the Roman government, they, of course, meant that as good news. But for those living under Roman rule, they knew that this child would only continue to carry on the oppression and the control of the previous kings. And so if we think about it like that, it kind of gives some new meaning, some additional meaning to what we talked about last week. In Luke chapter 2, when those angels show up to the shepherds and say, hey, we've got a gospel. We've got the good news of Jesus because now the Savior Christ, the Lord, has been born. Well, it seems like Mark is kind of using this play on words here that the Romans would have been familiar with to say that this is actually good news because Jesus Christ has come. There is a miracle that has taken place that only God himself can do. Uh, Referring to the first few words of Mark being the beginning of the gospel, one commentator writes this. He says, this has the echo of creation. The first book of the Bible opens in the same way, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing less than a new creation. It's the unprecedented moment when the creator of the world steps onto the stage of the world he made. The beginning of the good news is wrapped up in the mind-splitting, jaw-dropping identity of Jesus. The eternal son of God who has come in the flesh as the promised Messiah. Because listen, here's what he's doing. Mark's purpose in this isn't just to tell us about the life of Jesus. It's to tell us that for us there is life in Jesus. Because while he starts with this announcement of good news, he continues with a statement of identity. And look, he defines the gospel in relation to the person of Jesus. He's the good news. Jesus is the good news. And I love it. He just kind of jumps in. There's no disclaimer. There's no explanation. He just jumped in. Jesus is the Christ. As if to say, just keep on reading. Just keep going because you'll see why. Jesus is the Christ. And this is a bold statement. You know, we probably hear this so much, Jesus Christ, that it may lose some meaning for us. Maybe like for me, whenever as a kid, I, I thought this was his last name, you know, like it was Jesus Christ. And, and he was the son of Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, and they were the Christs, right? But this isn't a last name, and it's not, it's not even, you know, it's not a cuss word like some of us may use. This is, this is an identity. This is a title here. This is, he is the anointed one. He's the promised Messiah in Hebrew. He is the one who was promised would come and he would rescue the people of God. In a moment, Mark is going to give some evidence that he is the Christ in verses 2 through 8. But first, he makes this even bolder claim. He says that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he, he starts bold. 
But then he just kind of ramps it up and he goes beyond bold because for them there wouldn't have been this understanding that this would be the Messiah, that he would be the son of God, right? Rescuer, yes. Powerful leader, yes. But not the son of God. They didn't really have a, have a category for this. But in order for Jesus to identify with our humanity, he had to truly become a man. In order for him to have the power to save humanity, he had to truly be God. And so listen, here's what we're seeing here, is that the answer to the sin of humanity, which nobody denies is a problem, like every religion in the world is trying to find an answer to this. Like, what is the solution? How are we trying to figure this out? Because there is a problem that all of mankind has. We are hurting one another. We are making a mess of God's good creation. And so what is the solution? Well, he says it here. The answer to the sin of humanity isn't more religion. It isn't more education. It isn't more secularism. It's only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so verse 1 for us, this is not a statement we should just breeze past. This short little verse is the dividing line of our faith. The Bible says that those who deny it are going to perish <laughs> in eternal death. But those who would throw the full weight of their faith onto it, knowing that there's no middle ground, there's no exception, there's no alternative, they'll experience eternal life. That's only found in Jesus Christ. They'll get to experience the fullness of the presence of God. And so this is what Mark wants us to see. This is the first thing. This is the purpose. This is a proclamation of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, and that we're saved by it and we're encouraged by it. And so he continues now, secondly, to describe the, the good news by saying that, hey, this is a prophetic preparation. There was a prophetic preparation to his ministry and that's what's going on in verses 2 through 8. There was a prophecy or prophecies and a prophet who was going to have to first come before Jesus. Verses 2 to 3 are the prophecies that God fulfilled. And verses 4 through 8 describe how these prophecies are fulfilled. And through it, we can see about God's faithfulness to keep his word. And we can also learn from John's example of his faithfulness and humility. Look at verse 2. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then he actually quotes a combination of prophecies here. He starts with Malachi 3 verse 1. This will be on the screen for us. Malachi 3 verse 1 says, behold, I, and that's, that's God talking, I send my messenger and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord, talking about the Messiah here, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Then in verse 3, there's a reference to Isaiah 40, verse 3. There that says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so here is the picture that Mark is presenting. He's saying, God is going to send a messenger before the Messiah to prepare the way for him. If you read at the end of Malachi, it describes that this is going to be Elijah that's going to come. Mark also says this messenger is going to call out to his people and he's going to do this in the wilderness where God has continually called his people to repentance. And the message is going to be simple. Clear the way for the coming of the Lord. Clear the way. Jesus is coming. It's going to be like I-10 for me like my whole life. Like they're trying to like clear this path. They're trying to make it smooth. He's saying you've got to clear the way because the Lord is coming. And so now beginning at verse 4, Mark shows us that these prophecies have been fulfilled, that God does keep his promises, and that he kept those promises by sending John the Baptist. 
uh, the other morning, some of the guys were talking, and, and we were talking about how just amazing it is and how encouraging it is that all throughout Scripture, God continues to fulfill his prophecies. And so if you just think about Jesus, Jesus fulfilled at least dozens, maybe hundreds, some people say hundreds, depending on how you define a prophecy, but I would say at least dozens of prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus. And these prophecies were made hundreds of years before he was even born. Some of them to the day when he fulfilled the prophecies. Like when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, like it was to that day whenever that would happen. And so Jesus, he is fulfilling these prophecies. And what we see here, knowing that Mark is primarily writing to Roman Gentiles, we know that these fulfilled prophecies, they're significant to more than just the Jews who are familiar with the Old Testament. It's, familiar, it's, it's, it's um, significant to us even today because what this does is it can increase in us a confidence in the Scriptures. And so for us believing in God, like there is faith because we can't, we can't see God. And so we've got to have this faith when it comes to believing the Scriptures. It's not all blind faith. There is a validity to it because it continues to show itself time and time again. It increases our trustworthiness in the Bible. And so as you begin to study and look at these prophecies being fulfilled, it can be an encouragement to you, but it can also be a great apologetic as you're sharing Christ with people. It's such an encouragement to see that God continues to fulfill his prophecies, and he will continue to fulfill his prophecies. And so again in verse 4, Mark says that God did do this, and he did this through John the Baptist. And on through verse 8, he describes John's ministry. And then at the end, John even adds his own testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But look at verse 4. He says, all right, so John appeared, and he is preparing the way for Jesus in two ways. He says, first... He's baptizing in the wilderness. For them, that would have been the desert. And again, that's a place where God has historically called his people to repentance. And that's what John is doing here. He's baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so this type of baptism, it's familiar to us. It's how we baptize. It's immersing, immersing someone in water. But for the Jews at the time, this would have been less familiar. But it represented his message his message of repent. He's got one message. He's like that traveling evangelist. He's got one message, and he's got one suit. He's got a really weird suit here, but that, that travel evangelist, he's got one message here, and it's repent. It's turn from your sin. It's get ready for Jesus. And so here's what God is showing us here. He is making it clear to his people. He goes, you're off. You've lost sight of what this is all about. You've lost sight of, of what I've called you to. You are not prepared for the Messiah that's going to come. I mean, think about Isaiah chapter 1. God says to his people, he says, look, all this religious stuff that you're doing, all these actions and all these ceremonies have become meaningless. They're not about me anymore. He says, in fact, I hate them. And I'm not going to hear your prayers unless you do what? Unless you wash yourselves and make yourself clean. And now John the Baptist comes along on the scene, and what is he doing? He's baptizing, and he's calling people to repentance. John is saying, look, you got to repent, and you gotta, you got to prepare yourself for this true baptism that's going to come, that can only be provided by Jesus Christ. Then in verse 5, God blesses John's ministry. It says, and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So think about what the Jordan River represents. That was kind of that barrier between the people of God and the promised land. And so it's like God is saying, there is something great for you on the other side of this. When the Messiah comes, just wait. 
there is a promised land. It's going to be better than you experiencing freedom from Egypt. It's going to be better than you experiencing freedom from Rome. This is going to be a spiritual freedom that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so John, he's baptizing in the Jordan. And then in verse 6, you kind of get this quick sentence about the way he looked and the weird stuff that he ate. It says, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And so this is a this is a strange-looking guy with some strange habits, you know. And so this is probably not who the people expected. They probably were expecting somebody well put together, probably this Pharisee or a Sadducee to come and, and to really have it all together. But here's this guy, this, this hippie-looking guy. But what Mark is trying to show us here that this is more than a fashion statement. There is a reason why he looked this way. Remember, he was to be the Elijah figure that was going to come. If you read in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah is described the same way. He was wearing clothes of hair and a leather belt. And so Mark is saying that's the one. He's the Elijah that was going to come. He is that messenger that God had prepared before him. And now he is preparing the way for Jesus. And then in verses 7 to 8, it's like Mark passes the microphone to John the Baptist so that we can hear his testimony. He says in verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Like if there is anybody in the Bible who had reason to be prideful, it was going to be John the Baptist. I mean, he's the forerunner of Jesus. He's Elijah. His ministry is growing in number. He would be the guy on the Church Growth magazine. Like he, everybody, and he's so legit that, that people thought like maybe he's the Messiah. You look at what Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew 11. He says, there is nobody greater born of women than John the Baptist. This guy is so legit, but he's, he's the opposite of what everybody expected. In this time where you had the leaders of the people of God, they were so full of pride and self-righteousness. John the Baptist comes, and he's the opposite in every way. He is so humble. He says, he says I'm nothing compared to Christ. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. For them at this time, the, the, the lowest of the Gentile servants in the house would be the one to go and untie the the sandals, and wash the feet of the master in the house. The Jews at the time, they wouldn't even consider that an option for them. They wouldn't debase themselves to think of themselves like that. And John the Baptist is going, you know what? I'm not even that low. I'm, I'm lower than that. I'm lower than the lowest servant. I can't even untie his sandals. He's, he's so great. And John 3 says, I must in- decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. He must increase. And that should be the heart of every Christian today. He must increase. I must decrease. In my life, he must increase. I must decrease. In my marriage, he must increase. I must decrease. In my home, he must increase. I must decrease. With my time and with everything else, he must increase. I must decrease because we know how great Jesus is. Paul Tripp says we can only be in our proper place when Jesus is in his proper place. Think about when Jesus shows up on the scene. John the Baptist when he sees Jesus coming, he goes like, that's it. I know you guys have been following me. I know that I'm gathering this big crowd. I know I'm growing a lot of attention here with what I'm doing. But when Jesus comes, he goes, that's him. That's the Lamb of God who come to take away the sins of the world. Follow him. That was his ministry. It was, it was just pointing to him. And that's really, if you think about what our ministry is, that's the same thing. Our ministry is just trying to get people to Jesus, to point people to Jesus. Our ministry is trying to, trying to clear the way, remove some barriers between people and Jesus. That's what our ministry is. We're not trying to be some mediator. We're not trying to grow our own ministry. We're trying to grow the ministry of Jesus. 
We're trying to get people to a place where we get out of the way and those barriers get out of the way and so we can just lead them to him. That's what his ministry was and that's what our ministry should be. Because he says in verse 8, he says, I may have baptized you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, as meaningful as my baptism might be, it is only physical and it's only temporary. But the baptism that Jesus brings with the Holy Spirit is spiritual and it's eternal. He says, what I can only talk about, Jesus has the power to do. He says, we can repent all day long, but we need the power to actually keep us from continuing in sin. He says, only God can give the presence of God. He says, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to truly cleanse you from your sin. And he's going to empower you to do ministry. This is not that second baptism that people like to talk about. This is the baptism for all believers the baptism in the spirit, the one that we all need for life. And so the message of John here is look to Jesus. And the message of the prophecies is look to Jesus. And the message of Mark as a whole is look to Jesus. And so for us, that's going to continue to be the message of this church. It's going to be look to Jesus. It's going to be we want you to see Jesus. And so that needs to be our message with what we say and with what we show we need to be showing this community, look to Jesus. He's the good news. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. And so now as we wrap up, I just want to offer three quick points of application here from this passage. Three quick things. First is this. Be inspired by John's example. Be inspired by John's example. He was faithful. He was humble. He was more than just convinced. He was compelled in his mission to get people to Jesus, and we should be too. So look at his example. Secondly, be confident in God's word. God fulfilled his promises to send a messenger and to send the Messiah, and so we can be confident in his word. We can trust his word today. And thirdly, be certain of Mark's claim. Be certain of Mark's claim. At the end of the day, there's really only one thing that matters, and that's where we stand with Mark's claim of Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so ask yourself, are you certain of it? Am I certain of this today? You look at Mark uh, chapter, or Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, and there's everyone around. Everybody's confused at, as to who Jesus really is. And so Jesus asks his disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? And then Peter speaks up. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, to which Jesus responds, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, Peter, what you've received is a gift from God. You've got this revelation from him. And so the same is true for us. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, this is, this is a gift from God to us. And so then we can be confident and we can be certain that this is not something that we've received from Mark or John the Baptist or these prophecies or anybody else or anything else. But this is a gift from God himself. So as we close in prayer now and continue in worship, I just want to remind you that the altar is open. If you need prayer for anything, I want to invite you to come receive prayer. And then also today, if you realize that you need this Savior, you need Christ, the Son of God, then I want to invite you forward as well. And I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to give your life to him and to follow Jesus and to be saved. Let's pray together and we'll continue in worship. God, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. God, I'm so excited about all that you'll do and show us in the gospel of Mark. And so we, we pray that over and over we'll see that Jesus is high and lifted up. 
that he truly was the Messiah, that he truly is the Son of God, and that by believing him, as John says, that we can have life in his name. Lord, I pray that in this church, we would decrease and that you would increase more and more and more. Whatever you have for us this year, we want it. Whatever you give, whatever you take away, we'll trust you. We love you today. We pray this in Jesus' name.